All right. So thank you all of you who have um, wished me a happy birthday and donated to my birthday fund. That's very, very sweet and special and very, very appreciated. All right. We are going to the book of Mishle Proverbs and we are on chapter 17, verse 12. Um and uh, it's interesting because this verse is referencing a bear. And um, I've had a few experiences with bears. Um, one is that my family, hi, Aaron. My family went to um, the Great Smoky Mountains a number of years ago. And we, um, you know, I, I knew that bears were a big deal over there. The way they have the garbage cans arranged is that you have, you need to have two hands to open the garbage can because what was happening is that the bears were getting into the garbage cans. So you need to be an actual human with opposable thumbs and, you know, in order to open the garbage can. Um, anyway, so we had come to this, we went to an Airbnb and all my kids were there. My, my son had come in his own car and he had a little bit of sugar in a Ziploc bag for coffee and he left it in the car and he left his window open a little bit. And in the morning, we saw that a baby bear had um, had broken into the car and eaten up all his sugar. <laughs> so actually, the bear broke the lock of the car and we had to call a locksmith. So we're out there in like Nowheresville, Tennessee. And we just like Google a locksmith nearby. And my son spoke on the phone to this locksmith and he he said, okay, okay, the locksmith is coming because it was hard to understand him. I think he's like Russian or something. Anyway, the locksmith showed up and he was Israeli, if you can believe that. <laughs> I mean, literally we're in the wilderness and this Israeli locksmith who are apparently, they're apparently all over the place, you know, showed up and we had, we had fun with that. But anyway, you know, these bears, they're like really, and then the second story is that my daughter who goes to camp in the poke in the Catskills in the summer, um, she had left some snacks in her bunkhouse and the kids were all out in some activity. And when she came back, um, a bear had come into the cabin and eaten all her snacks. So a hungry bear is definitely a, a danger and, and a menace. And that's sort of the uh, metaphor that we're going to be working off for our, our teaching yeah. today. Okay, Dana, I like your guest. I have to. I need to <laughs> your doggy looks, looks kind of like your dog, Sherry. Oh my God. He's been like yeah. learning to rap for like his whole life. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Very wise. I love it. Okay. Hi, Laura. And um, okay. the Chicagoans, you guys saw that I'm coming to Chicago. So on September 10th. So I'm really excited to see you guys, hopefully. So excited. Already signed up. Amazing. Okay. So we're on verse 12. Here we go. Pagosh Dov. So the word Dov in Hebrew means a bear. So if you know anybody with the name Dov, right? It, that's that's a bear. My husband's name is actually Yisrael Yehuda Dov. Um, Yisrael Yehuda was his great grandfather and Dove were frankly, not really sure who Dove is, but it means a bear. <laughs> okay. Pagosh Dove shall cool be ish. Let a bear robbed of her whelps meet a man. Okay. So that means a, a bear who is bereft of its babies, right? You know, the expression mama bear, right? That's often used for the Jewish mother. Like don't threaten my babies or I will come after you. <laughs> okay. Rather than a fool, someone with his skepticism. All right. So here we're setting up, right, a like a comparison. Would you rather meet 
a bear who has just been robbed of her babies? Or would you rather meet a fool who is full of skepticism? And King Solomon says, I'll take the bear. I'd rather take the bear. Why? Because a bear represents physical danger. And a foolish person who is full of skepticism, and when, when we say here skepticism, we're talking about cynicism towards spirituality, that person represents a spiritual threat. And we should choose a physical threat over a spiritual threat any day of the week, right? Now, just to understand this, I think, you know, I, I often say this when people say, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me which of course is not true at all. Words are extremely painful. But if you think about a physical, um, a physical, physical damage, right? Let's say somebody, you know, falls down and breaks their arm or something like that. Ouch, it hurts. It's very, very painful. You have to go to the doctor. You have to set the bone. It has to heal. It takes time. There might be scarring. It might never be the same again. All true. That's a physical that's physical damage. What about spiritual damage? A person is emotionally abused, God forbid, or traumatized, right? That takes much longer to heal. And that damage goes way deeper. So, you know, that old adage, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Actually, the opposite is true. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can break my soul. And that kind of damage is much, much harder to heal. If you break your arm, you go to a doctor, the doctor sets the bone, you know, uh, it, it could be extensive and, and scary and painful and all of that. But when a person's soul gets hurt, sometimes they don't even know what it is and they don't even know how to diagnose it. And they don't even know who to turn to or where to go. How do you fix that? How do you mend a broken heart? How do you mend a damaged soul? Right? So that's what King Solomon is saying. Give me the physical threat any day over that spiritual threat, because that is much easier to contend with much easier to deal with. Okay, so let's go to the commentary. Hello, Avril and Robin. Welcome, guys. Hi. Okay, so this is on the bottom of page 181. The bereft bear is a physical danger. The skeptic, so I, I don't like the word skeptic because I think anybody could be skeptical. Actually, I don't think there's anything wrong with being skeptical. Actually, a little healthy dose of skepticism is a good thing. We shouldn't believe everything we hear, right? I think the word that that is a better fit here is cynicism. When a person is cynical towards matters of the soul, right? So the cynic, let's call it, able to inject into the heart of the fool his own philosophical doubts and dispute of moral law and wisdom. So this person who takes everything holy and turns it into a joke, or who is cynical about anything real and powerful and emotional, right? This person is a far worse peril, spiritually fatal, right? This person can literally kill another person's spirituality. And I have to tell you, I have seen this happen. I have seen people who are interested in pursuing their spirituality, interested in pursuing their Jewish identity and commitment to a greater degree, but there's a friend or a family member who doesn't stop making fun of them or making them feel stupid, who is cynical of their journey. And many times the person in question simply does not have the strength or the energy to fight it. And they just stop and they just give up. It's hard. It's hard to pursue matters of the spirit in our, in our current culture. So that is 
it's a really it's a really credible threat. As a hunter, a man may prevail against the bear or the bear may simply let him go. The fool will never prevail against cynicism and never relinquish it, right? So if you're faced by a bear, well, if you stand very still, maybe the bear will go away, right? But if you're a person who's trying to pursue their spirituality and you have somebody who's threatening that pursuit, who's constantly making fun of you or being cynical or making you feel stupid about your interest, that person is not going to just stay still and let you go. That person is going to feel the need to continue piling that cynicism upon you until you give up. So Larissa said, that's why it's such a blessing when you are on a spiritual journey with your spouse. It's so true. It is. Um, and and that's it's so beautiful, Larissa, that you and your husband are. I find that it's way more common for one spouse to be interested in these pursuits and the other spouse very much less. So it's it's really unlikely. It's unusual to find both members of the couple equally interested, you know, or both interested in these kinds of matters. So when it does work out that a couple can pursue this together, it's a beautiful, beautiful blessing. And I know some of you here do have that blessing. Um, but unfortunately, the other way is far more common. Okay. Thoughts or comments about the bear, the bear and the cynic. I will say that it is a really good idea to find, if it's not a spouse, to find a friend, um, which is, this is part of what's so nice about having a muscle group like this, is to find a like-minded person or group of people who can follow these interests with you because it's it's very hard, if not impossible, to do alone. I remember years ago when I first started blogging and there was a woman who read my blog who lived in Scotland um, she was agoraphobic and I believe autistic as well. And she felt very uncomfortable interacting with other people in person. So, but she had recently discovered as an adult that she was Jewish and she was scouring the web for any resources that she could find to pursue more information about her Jewish identity and Jewish learning and all of this. And somehow or another, she found my blog and she kept telling me, I just reconnected with her on Facebook. She kept telling me that it was so incredible to have a community of people to pursue her Judaism with, which, which she did not have in real life. In her case, she preferred her online community to in-person interactions. Um, and sometimes that's, you know, she was living in a place that was very far away from Jewish communities. So she didn't even have that as an option. Um, so online communities are great even better, you know, is to have an in-person peer or friend or like-minded individual who you can do this together with because, you know, sometimes it just feels very countercultural. Rocky, I was going to say, I agree. I think it's, as adults, sometimes a little trickier to, you know, cultivate new friendships, the comfortable friendships, but um, you know, what we learn is um, kind of refreshing to meet those women and people in our lives that are on a similar journey. It may not be exactly the same, but they get us instead of 
the ones that don't. And I actually recently, for the first, I've never had this happen. I was at a birthday party and somebody who had been actually on a trip, on a momentum trip, um, I just was like, oh, yeah, and kind of just telling her what I, I study. And I kid you not, she laughed in my face. And I, she was like, whoa, you're so Jewish. Or I don't know, something I'm like, yeah, I don't know. You know? Oh my and it was really bizarre. And it was like, okay, so I will just continue to cultivate those other friendships. Yikes. And there you go. Yeah, it was really bizarro. And this yeah. is a woman who went on a trip, which really wow. interesting. Okay, that's it. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons why I like to I have a WhatsApp group for each one of my classes because I also feel like it's a place to create community in between our classes where we can share our, you know, simchas or if we need prayers or, you know, milestones and we can share ideas with each other and it's a place to have that sense of like oh, I'm in a community of people who are doing this with me and who are connected with me, you know, so it's a great resource, but I'm really sorry you had that experience. Um, I mean, I would venture to guess that everybody in this class probably had some kind of experience where somebody made fun of them for something Jewish that they were doing. You know, unfortunately, it's not that rare. Robin. I've had it happen, but I've never to that degree. It was really yeah. odd say that. Yeah, that's pretty blatant. <laughs> Robin. Um, I have actually, what Laura just said, I have definitely heard. Um, and whether it's relevant or not, there, and, and maybe I'm reaching a little on this, it always feels a little bit to me like people are threatened. That's kind of the feeling I've gotten. And I don't know why other Jews who have the opportunity would feel that way, but that always seems to be the case. There's like, um, you know, we have a friend from Chicago that you know, it does not miss an opportunity when something goes on in the observant community to send us an article. And, you know, he was so pro that TV show. Um, I can't think of what it was where the woman sort of made every, she was from Muncie and just My Orthodox it. life. <laughs> he was, he thought that was like the gospel. And it, it always felt to me like he was a little threatened. Um, mm -hmm. He was so poking so much fun all the time. And I do think you're right. And I think that I don't remember if it was in this class or another class, but somebody said that they find that their non-Jewish friends seem to be seem to find their observances much more cool, but their Jewish friends, it seems to make them uncomfortable. And I, I you know, I, I've seen that happen many times. I've heard from many people. I mean, I've I've never worked for a non-Jewish boss. I've always, I've always either worked in the religious community or for myself. Um, but I know that a lot of people, if they need to, if they want to try to do Shabbat on time and they're trying to leave work early on Friday, if they have a Jewish boss, it will be far more likely that they'll get grief. Where if it, whereas if it's a non-Jewish boss, they're more likely to get respect. Um, and I think a big part of that is that Jewish people have a guilt complex and therefore they feel threatened by observance and they wonder what more observant people think of them if they think they're not good enough or they're like a slacker Jew. And so there's this mm -hmm. sort of defense mechanism that arises. I'm just playing armchair psychologist here, but I think there's this defense mechanism that rises up and says, oh, 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 this feels threatening because I'm Jewish. And if that's the right thing to do, then 
am I being implicated here? Am I being looked down upon here? No, I have to assert my secularism. Whereas a non-Jew has none of that complex. There's nothing there. It's just neutral. There's nothing to react to, you know? And I think that those of us who are on a more Jewish path, um, or I shouldn't say more Jewish, but on a more serious Jewish path, should recognize that dynamic. And, and, and we should also try to make sure that we're not making other people uncomfortable. You know, talking about this relationship between like, let's say two spouses where one of them is super into their Judaism and the other one isn't, my husband and I will always counsel the more observant spouse that it's their job to make their other spouse comfortable because they're the ones who are making a change. Meaning when two people get married, they enter into this like unwritten contract. And the contract is that we're marrying each other as we are today. And these are the rules of our relationship, you know? And then if, now obviously any married couple, life is going to change you, right? People get married when they're, um, I don't know, however old in their twenties and their thirties. And of course you're going to change as you go through life. You're going to meet different interests that didn't used to interest you 20 years ago. You're going to meet new people. You're going to life changes you all kinds of things. Right? So the spouse that's making a change, it is on them to honor the original agreement, so to speak. And to it's, it's on the spouse who's changing to make the other spouse more comfortable and not vice versa. Meaning if, if when the couple got married, they both kept kosher and then one of them decides they don't want to keep kosher anymore. It's their job to respect the rules of the house. Fine. Go out, eat kosher, eat non kosher, whatever, but don't bring it into the house because that, that, that was our original agreement, so to speak. Right. Whereas let's say one of the spouses, they, they got married and they didn't keep kosher. And then one of the spouses decided they want to keep kosher. That's fine. You can't demand that we make the whole house kosher then. Right. Because it's your job. The person who changes, it's their responsibility to make the other spouse more comfortable. That's kind of like the, the rule that we that we go on. Cindy. So I my so daughter has we, always okay. used an expression that religion is like a hammer. You can use it to build and you can use it to break. Hmm. Very, very true. Thank you. Cindy, go ahead. Um it reminds me of um, Esther Perello's my mm-hmm. huge girl crush. Um, when she says that you have, um, you hopefully you'll be married. You'll have several marriages to the same person over mm-hmm. the years. That's you great. know, so it's real. It's nice because you know she like you change every seven years, and hopefully you get remarried every seven years to the new spouse, which is really lovely. And then I actually had a really cool opportunity to have a very mature conversation with an aunt who was making fun of us, like always like a little snarky and like, Ooh, you're so Jewish, you know, the whole, you know, the sarcasm. And, um, I had a really, I had a great conversation. She was a very mature woman. So I was feeling like I could have the conversation with her. And she said, that the reason she does it is because she was jealous because she was looking at my family and she was like, they really have it together. Like all the kids are, you know, thank God in a good space and there's happiness and everybody's getting along and it, and she knows, she goes, I know you have like normal stress in your life, but she, she wasn't feeling threatened by it. She was feeling jealousy. And I thought it was so, such a wonderful opportunity that I had because I would never imagine that in my whole life. I think it's amazing that she could be honest about that. Yeah, she's a great lady. 
Hmm. Like I, I wouldn't have had the conversation if I didn't think she was fantastic. Wow. But yeah. That's very eye-opening, you know, mm -hmm. it was really eye-opening for us to remember as we go through our lives and we encounter this kind of negativity that there's a reason that people are negative, that everyone has their reasons, you know? Really a long time ago, we went and had a Shabbaton in Amish country, Amish area out in Burton. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure it was your husband and perhaps you or a bunch of us who said, you know, we're so respectful of the Amish. They do things in an old fashioned way. We don't say, oh, why are they wearing those clothes? In general, we're very re revering. And, you know, it's interesting that we would be so respectful respectful of Amish versus people who are wearing long coats in the middle of the summer and, you know, shrimals in our community. So it's interesting, the lack of judgment and the judgment when it's your own. And I can't remember right. who said that, but same with like, you know, devout Christians or, you know, we're respectful of Buddhist monks, hopefully, and others, but why wouldn't be, why wouldn't we be respectful of our own? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Revere. I remember yeah. that Shabbaton well. Me too. <laughs> it was so interesting because I, I, I pro you probably remember this in the afternoon, we took a walk to see this Amish farm mm -hmm. and this guy was talking about like the different sects and denominations within the Amish community. And like, they have their version of like modern Orthodox and yeah. reform and like the ones who will get into a car and the, the ones who won't get into the ones who are using loopholes to have a phone, you know? And I was like, OMG, we are all the same. People right. are literally all the same. It's so, it was so fascinating. Um, there is a very interesting book, by the way, for those of you who are interested in that whole culture, it's called Growing Up Amish. Um, I found it at one of these Amish Airbnbs that we stayed at in that hotel and I ended up ordering it online. Um, it's a super interesting story that I think have a lot of parallels to the Jewish community. So if anybody is interested in reading that book, it's it's very, very interesting. Okay, Erin had her hand up, but I think she just stepped away for a sec. So, and she's back. Yes, Erin. <laughs> no, I, I sometimes feel like, you know, if, if someone were like a little birdie on our call right now and they would listen to what the people that are kind of mocking, like, oh, you're so Jewish, it's like, if they heard what we were really talking about, even in this class about character traits and being a good person. And really sometimes when I describe, you know, when someone says that to me, like, oh, you're the most Jewish person, you know, and I said, you know, it's just some of these classes are just being a, a good person. It really, I mean, I love how you bring in wisdom of Torah, but a lot of this is just, is really like the basics of of living in this world in in like a better way and i think sometimes um people are so judgmental and threatened but if the, someone really sat on this call they would probably giggle a little like oh you're talking about you know character traits that's right right you know, how intimidating is that <laughs> right right this is what you're scared of what <laughs> you know and even talking about giving those people grace those people who do make those comments and, you know, kind of trying to be compassionate towards them that they are having this kind of knee-jerk reaction. Yeah, that's such a great observation. All right, let's move on to verse 13. If one returns evil for good, 
Lo beto, evil will not depart from his house. So here we're talking about somebody does something good for you and you pay them back with bad, right? And we're using God here as a role model for what we are supposed to do, right? God, Judaism does not believe in a punitive God, in an angry God. Judaism believes in a compassionate, loving God who admittedly wants to get our attention when we're doing something wrong so we can do better and improve, right? The same way when people we love do something wrong, sometimes we have to tap them on the shoulder and bring their attention to it, even though it's uncomfortable. Um, but because we care about them, we want them to become aware of what they're doing, right? So if a person pays back good with bad, then they're going to, that that's a problem. <laughs> it's not the kind of person that we want to be. All right. So the commentary explains sort of God's role in this role modeling. The almighty repays measure for measure. We're on page 182. Measure for measure, right? In Hebrew, mida keneged mida. Mida, as you know, is a character trait, right? It, it literally means a measurement. God pays back measure for measure. What does that mean? That means that let's say you do a mitzvah with your money. God will give you more money. You do a mitzvah with your power of speech, God will give you eloquence. You do a mitzvah with your home, God will allow you to upgrade your home. I don't know, stuff like that. God, right? And the same thing is true with consequences, right? If a person speaks in a negative way, maybe they'll get a toothache. Or if a person um, refuses to uh, do hospitality and share their home, right? They just want to kind of hoard it all for themselves. Maybe they'll find that they have termites or something like that. Why? Because God is trying to draw our attention to the area of our good deeds or bad deeds so that we can connect the dots and do better. Okay. If a person merely does evil, he can correct his way and all will be well. So let's say that I, I, I do something bad. Okay. Let's say I, um, let's say that my kid's teacher did something that I didn't like. So without speaking to the teacher or without giving the benefit of the doubt, I call up the principal and I tattle on the teacher. Okay. That's bad, right? Not a good thing to do. There's protocol for that sort of thing. It's not nice to badmouth somebody to a superior without giving them the opportunity to talk it over, to explain, to make it better, et cetera. Okay, so if I do that, if a person merely does evil, he can correct his way and all, be, and all will be well. Fine. Well, I did that wrong thing, but maybe I'll regret it. Maybe, right? The next day I'll think to myself, oh gosh, you know what? I feel kind of bad. I probably shouldn't have done that. I probably should have spoken to the teacher first. I probably should have double checked that my child's story was accurate. Maybe my kid exaggerated or maybe my kid left out some pertinent details. Oh gosh, I feel really bad. You know what? I'm going to make this right. So I call back the principal. I say, you know what? I totally overreacted. I'm sorry. And then you call the the teacher and you apologize and you, you do whatever you can to make it right. Okay. So listen, God understands that all of us are human and we'll all make mistakes. We'll all do, do things wrong in our life. That's okay because you can correct it and you can do better and you can apologize and you can make it right. But if he returns evil for good, however, so let's say that that teacher did something really nice to you, right? Let's say that teacher called you on the first day of school and said, which I have to tell you guys, a parenthetical story about that. 
I was talking to a woman in New Jersey, in uh, Scarsdale, New York. I'm teaching a partial class uh, virtually for her community. And she was asking me if I ever come to the New York area because she would love to have me speak live to her community. So I said, well, actually, my my nephew's bar mitzvah is in December. I said, I wonder if they're doing anything Saturday night. I'll check. She goes, oh, who's your brother? I said, oh, my brother's name is Heshi Sobel. She goes, Heshi Sobel. I, for, I forgot that where my brother lives, like everybody calls him Rabbi Sobel. Like to me, he's my little brother. So I forget that he's like Rabbi Sobel in his community. So I said, yeah, oh, Rabbi Sobel. He lives in Monsignor. She goes, Rabbi Sobel. I said, yeah. She goes, he was my son's teacher last year. I said, he was? She goes, yes, he's the best teacher ever. My kid loved him. She goes, do you know what he did? I said, what did he do? She goes, all of his eighth grade students from last year, I mean, he probably does this every year. I just didn't know this. She goes, all of his eighth grade students last year. So the way it works, he teaches in a day school. So the boys all go to day school through eighth grade. And then starting in ninth grade, they go to yeshiva. So, you know, they're starting in a new school and it's like high school, it's higher stakes, whatever. She goes, he called every single ninth grader the day before school started to wish them the best of luck in their new year. All of his students from last year. I said, oh my gosh, that is so nice to hear. I'm so great. Actually, I meant to call my sister-in-law and give her the nachas and I forgot. So I need to write myself a note to do that. But I was thinking, wow, I'm not, I'm not surprised to hear that my brother is an amazing teacher, but I never, I don't know. People don't know we're related. We have different last names. So when would I ever have a parent call me up and tell me, did you know what an amazing teacher your brother is, right? Okay, so let's use that as an example. Let's say here's this woman who called me. Her name is Elisheva, right? And her son was in my brother's class last year. And my brother did good. He did good for her kid, right? He had a great year. He, um, my brother really, you know, encouraged him and got, you know, took the time to get to know him. And then he called him the day before school started for ninth grade to say, hey, how are you? I miss you. I hope you have a great year, right? My brother did good for, for this woman's son. Then let's say, not that my friend Elisheva would ever do this because she's a very good person. Um, she's a teacher of Torah herself, actually. But let's say she would then pay back bad for good, right? So let's say she received good from this person. It's not, it's not like the other example before where I just, I did something bad. I received good from this person and now I'm paying them back with bad. Whew, that is much worse. That's on a whole other level. Okay. If he returns evil for good, however, he is repaid in kind. How does God deal with this scenario? Remember, we said that God interacts with us measure for measure. So how is God going to handle this person who received good and paid back bad? Should he even repent and do good Evil will not depart from his house at the time. That's what the verse says, right? If one returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. So now when this person tries to do good to God, right? This person turns to God and says, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I paid back bad for good. God says, well, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but I also now have to pay back bad for good. So you're trying to repent, right? But this person is not just a neutral relationship. This person did so much for you. There's so much ingratitude here. There's so much like, I mean, this is just really, so now you're doing good to me, says God, but I, I have to pay you back with bad too, because I pay you back in the same manner that you did something wrong. So when, so this really boils down very much to the character trait of gratitude, right? And particularly 
our relationship with our parents comes to mind. You all know that it is in the 10 commandments that we have to honor our father and mother. It's the fifth commandment. Um, and sometimes it can be a difficult commandment. And it is interesting to note that this mitzvah does not cease when a parents when a person's parents have passed. A person can still do good to their parents after they have passed, and a person can still do bad to their parents after they have passed, right? A person can do a mitzvah in their parents' honor. A person can badmouth their parents after they're gone. There's all kinds of things we can still do. The main crux of the mitzvah of honoring our parents is gratitude, that your parents gave you life. And even if they didn't do anything else good, you would still have a responsibility to be grateful just for that. So this is a perfect example of where somebody does good for you. Your parents gave you life, right? And chances are they did a lot more than that for you, even if they were imperfect or even not good parents, right? They gave us food. They gave us an education. They gave us a home. They took us on vacations. They bought us clothing. All the things that parents do for children, whether they're stellar parents or not. So how can we pay back bad for good? That's what this uh, verse is teaching us, that that in God's eyes, it is so serious to pay back bad for good. We have to be very, very cognizant of who are the people in our lives who have done good for us and to remember to be grateful for those people, even if they sometimes do other things that are very upsetting or annoying, we still have that responsibility for gratitude for all the things that they have done. Okay, thoughts or comments on verse 13? Okay, so we're going to finish off with verses 14 and 15 together. Here's 14. Hoter mayim reshit madon, the beginning of strife is like letting out water. Then before discord breaks out, withdraw. Okay, so we're talking here about like, you know, a hole in the dam, right? When you, when there is a fight, it's like a hole in the dam and the water starts leaking out of this edifice. 15. He who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous. So you make good people look bad and you make bad people look good. Okay. Um, Both of these people are an abomination of God. Okay. So we're talking here about controversy, conflict, and how damaging it is and how difficult it is to reverse, okay? So we're using this metaphor of like a dam, like when there's a hole, right? It's so hard to collect it. It's so hard to put it back in the bag, so to speak, okay? So here's the commentary. Once one has opened up a hole in a reservoir, there is no holding back the flood. Similarly, once a controversy really gets going, there is no controlling its fury or its destructiveness. So what's the fix? It is better, therefore, for a judge, and we don't only mean like a formal judge, we mean a person who has the ability to adjudicate adjudicate, or to make things better. It is better, therefore, for the judge to try to make peace between litigants, right? So instead of fanning the flames of controversy, which sometimes is very easy to do, right, but to try to, to make peace, to say, you know, I don't know, maybe they didn't really mean, mean it that way, the way it sounded, okay? 
I just had an opportunity to do that. One, one person in my family showed me a text message from another person in my family and said, could you believe they wrote this to me? <laughs> and I'm looking at the text and I'm thinking to myself, I don't actually think they meant it the way the person has received it, right? Now, what this person wanted me to say was, oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> but it's my job, right, to try to lower the heat on the flame instead of to raise the heat on the flame. So I said, listen, I, I understand that that's upsetting, right? Because you want to try to validate people. But I, I'm not actually hearing it the way you're hearing it. They're like, no. I'm like, no, I think what they're trying to say is X, Y, and Z. And they're like, oh, no, that's not how I read it. I said, listen, I don't know if I'm right. I'm just saying there might be more than one way to understand that. So sometimes it's actually quite easy if you have your head on the right place, <laughs> if you're aware of this dynamic, right, to be able to lower the flames of controversy before it's too late, before things really start burning up. So it is better, therefore, for a judge to try to make peace between litigants before he delivers the verdict and bad feeling can no longer be restrained. This is laudable, however, only in the early stages of the case, right? There's a there's a window that you can do this before the judge has arrived at his assessment or even before the case has been heard, right? I mean, this is true in the legal system. You can get a case dismissed before it goes to trial but once you're in it, <laughs> you can't be like, oh, never mind. Let's kind of just, I don't know, maybe you can. I don't know much about law. Maybe, Sherry, you can fill me in. But I think there's a window at which you can, you know, negotiate. And after a certain point, you can't. Or maybe I'm totally wrong. Once the judge has reached his verdict, then to try and urge a compromise would be unjust to both litigants. It would justify the wicked and condemn the righteous. So you really want to try to kind of nip these controversies in the bud before things get very advanced and out of control. And then what happens? And then sometimes it goes to an actual court or it goes into the court of public opinion, right? Or everybody starts making up their mind about who's right and who's wrong, right? Now, once that happens, then sometimes you really do have to decide who's right and wrong because action has to be taken, right? Like, let's say there's a big controversy in uh, a family and decisions have to be made. So once things get too inflamed, then you do have to say this person is right and this person is wrong, because if not, then you're doing what it says um, about justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous. Then you do have to react. Then I do have to decide who's right and wrong. But if I could dial it back and just say, listen, you know what, in the early stages, maybe we can just reach an agreement. Maybe we could try to understand each other. Maybe we can just compromise here before things get to that stage, right? Because once they advance, then sometimes we do have to take a moral stand about who we agree with and who we don't agree with. So we're not condoning negative behavior or making the good guy look like a bad guy. Okay. So, um, I have to say, I, I, I find that particularly in the divorce world, there has been a shift towards uh, mediation, um, which is a way of navigating a divorce in a way that avoids or hopefully avoids this bad guy, good guy, right, wrong, 
you know, take each other to court, lose all your money. Um, but a way to reach an agreeable compromise without that strife and without that controversy, right? Exactly what is being described in these verses. But once things have gone too far, usually once there's so much anger and so much pain and so much hurt and so much resentment, usually people are much, you know, the parties involved are much less likely to be willing to mediate because then it becomes so personal and so emotional. And, and that's true with every fight and with every controversy. If at, if at all a person could reach a, a state of compromise before things get too escalated, that is by far the best way to go. And this is true personally, and it's true professionally, and it's true maritally, you know, even though it can be very uncomfortable to approach things in the early stages, because you say to yourself, well, it's not, it's not worth it. It's not that bad. You know, I, I don't have to do this yet, but that's the whole point. Do it when the stakes are low, instead of waiting until things have sort of crossed over to the point of no return. Okay, any thoughts or comments on 14 and 15? Or any closing thoughts or comments? Okay, I agree today. Should we try one more? Let's see, we have three more minutes. Let's go for it. 16. Why is there a price in the hand of a fool? To buy wisdom when he has no self-disciplining heart. All right. So here's the metaphor. We have a foolish person, right? What we call a cynic or a scoffer. And this person is coming with money and saying, hello, I'd like to buy some wisdom, please. But this person has no self-disciplining heart. So this person wants a shortcut. They want wisdom without any self-discipline, okay? So this is interesting. The commentaries say that the term mechir, the Hebrew word for price, right? Why is there a price in the hand of a fool? It denotes a valued object bartered for something desired. So you have something that's valuable, right? And you want to trade it for something else. Unable to restrain forbidden cravings, right? So this is a person who wants to do what they want to do. They want to say what they want to say. They want to buy what they want to buy. They want to be who they want to be. They don't want anybody cramping their style, okay? The fool wants to acquire the moral wisdom that will control him and imagines that he can offer up his unhibited cravings and desires in a fair barter, but he lacks the heart. So this is a person who is very confused. You know how we use the word I like, I want something, right? So we'll say, I want to get up early in the morning to go to yoga. But also, I want to roll over and go back to sleep. Both of those things are me, right? I really want to open my mouth and give that person a piece of my mind. But also, I really want to be the better person and be mature and kind and be proud of my restraint. So which I is the real me? The truth is they're both me, right? One is my higher self and one is my lower self. One is the voice of my body, so to speak, and one is the voice of my soul. 
One is the voice of my Yetzer Hatov, my voice of conscience, and one is the voice of my Yetzer Hara, my voice of temptation and toxicity. They're both me. So here is this fool, and he's saying, oh, I'd like to buy some wisdom, please, but also, can I please still do whatever I want? <laughs> because I really want to be wise, but also I really want to do whatever I want, right? Never. I feel bad for this person. <laughs> you can't have it all. At any given moment, we're making choices. And the choice is going to be, which me am I going to listen to right now? Am I going to listen to my higher voice or am I going to listen to my lower voice? Which is the me that I more closely identify with? And the truth is, when you become conscious of these two voices in your head, when you're doing something wrong, like let's say I lose it and I yell at somebody, right? I am aware as I'm doing it. Oh, Look at me giving in to the temptation of my lower self. Yep, there I go. Mm -hmm. Watching it happen right now, like a play on the stage. There I go. I know. I know I'm giving in to the voice of my lower self. At least I'm aware of it, right, guys? <laughs> at least I'm conscious of what's going on. So this verse sort of paints the story of this sort of dual personality individual, right? Who's like, I'd like to buy some wisdom, please. But also, I don't have to change anything about what I do, right? I can just keep being me. Wrong. <laughs> because... Life is a series of choices, choosing to identify by our higher self, choosing to identify by our lower self, and ultimately we are defined by our choices. That's what makes us us, a series of choices. We're not defined by one individual choice, right? Because all of us will make some individual choices that we're not proud of, but we are defined by the general scope of the choices we will make throughout our lives. Okay, so we will stop here. Thank you everybody for participating. Um, next week, we will not have class. I'm going to my cousin's wedding in Montreal and I will be on a plane. Um, so I am unavailable next week, but God willing, I will see you guys in two weeks. Um, and thank you for participating and Shabbat Shalom. And thank you all of you who participated in my birthday fundraiser. I appreciate it and all the warm wishes. Thank you so much. And enjoy the rest of your week. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Bye, guys.